1: Welcome to P's podcast series, FIGP Focus 45. P is the only international NGO whose membership consists entirely of IP attorneys in private practice. The FigPee Global Community is driven by a shared interest among like-minded people to promote common solutions and advocacy for private practice. The FigPee Business Family makes the world a little bit smaller, bringing independent IP attorneys from around the globe together to focus on IP issues of global importance. Our host is Louis-Pierre Gravel, a registered patent agent and partner at Bereskin & Par in Montreal, Canada. Good morning, good afternoon, good evening. Welcome to FICP's webinar and podcast series, FICP Focus 45. My name is Louis-Pierre Gravel, and I'm a partner at Breskin & Par in Montreal, Canada. As a registered patent agent in Canada and the United States, I practice in the fields of quantum technology, AI, telecommunications, mechanical engineering, and information technology. In recognition of Black History Month in North America, FICPE Focus 45, Fickpe's DEIA committees, are thrilled to be in conversation with Winifred Neisser, Executive Director of the Angel City Choral, semifinalists in America's Got Talent, and former TV executive. Winifred will recount the story of her mother, Winifred Parker, and her sister, Frida, who has Black enrollees at Purdue University in Indianapolis in 1946-1947, were denied on-campus housing. The Parker Sisters fought all the way to the Indiana governor for the right to live on campus in previously segregated dorms at Purdue. In June of 2021, the Purdue Board of Trustees renamed the Griffin Residence Halls as the Parker Residence Halls in their honor. Hear the story of the Parker Sisters' battle to desegregate housing at Purdue through Winifred's also very accomplished daughter. This event will take place Monday, February 26th, 10.30 10.30 a.m. Eastern Standard Time. Details are available on the FIPB.org website. As intellectual property professionals, we focus on securing the most appropriate IP rights for our clients and ensure alignment with the business goals. Our domestic clients often consider obtaining patent protection or trademark protection in the United States, one among a handful of top destinations. But what happens when our clients also want to invest in the U.S. by buying companies located there? Is it a free-for-all approach, or are there potential issues that need to be looked at? We are delighted to have as our guest today Ed LeBeau from the firm of Haynes & Boones in Washington. Ed has been representing clients in international trade cases for over 30 years, in particular in advising clients on how to comply with U.S. trade laws and avoid costly proceedings. Today's topic will focus on Ed's work helping companies navigate the requirements imposed by the Committee on Foreign Investment in the United States, CFIUS, or as it's more commonly known, CFIUS. Welcome to our program, Ed. It's a pleasure to have you with us.
0: Thank you, Louis-Pierre. Looking forward to uh, discussing CFIUS with you and its implications for foreign investors in the United
1: States. Thank you very much for that. But what is CFIUS and why should IP practitioners, for example, be aware of this committee? Well, CFIUS, the acronym,
0: as you say, is a committee on foreign investment in the United States. CFIUS is a multi-agency entity comprised of several United States government departments, so it's managed out of the treasury department. It's led by treasury and on a particular investment, there's usually a co-lead agency, energy defense, what have you, depending on the US entity being acquired or in which there is a foreign investment. CFIUS has the authority to come in if where it has jurisdiction, and we'll get to what, when it has and when it doesn't have jurisdiction. CFIUS has the authority to impose conditions on a foreign investment in the United States to protect U.S. national security interests. That's what CFIUS's real purpose is, to protect U.S. national security. And it also, in rare instances, can recommend to the president that he or she completely block the transaction. It happens rarely, but that does happen. Or sometimes parties to a CFIUS proceeding realize that the winds are not blowing in the right direction and they withdraw their uh, application.
1: So what was the impetus originally, or maybe we can go to a little bit of history behind it, for establishing the committee? And has anything recent changed in that there's a bit of a renewed interest or perhaps higher profile for the work of the committee?
0: Yes, there really has been a higher profile in the last few years. The committee has existed for several decades. It became codified with more standardized procedures in 1988. And then again, even more procedures were put in place in 2007. The concern with CFIUS really reflects in some ways the geopolitical situation and United States political concerns. In the first years of the 21st century, the concern was over perhaps Arab acquisition of U.S. companies that that were close to U.S. ports, and there was a, a nervousness about potential terrorism. In earlier years, in the 80s, there had been concern about Japanese investment when the United States was feeling particularly at risk economically vis-a-vis Japan. And not surprisingly, in the past several years, the interest has turned to China, And in fact, in 2018, in one of the few areas in which the U.S. Congress actually is showing bipartisan agreement, there was something passed called the Foreign Investment Risk Review Modernization Act. And that mouthful summarizes as FIRMA. And FIRMA increased CFIUS jurisdiction, not just over transactions where there were actual foreign purchases to control U.S. Businesses, but also even non-controlling investments in certain high-tech, critical technology
1: areas. Before we we go further, would those kinds of investment include sponsored research within universities?
0: No, not okay. unless there, there. There could be. Um, export control issues for sponsored research in universities to make sure that anything which was developed by U.S. persons or in the United States that was subject to U.S. export control was not shared with the foreign sponsor. But CFIUS jurisdiction extends to a transaction which leads to an investment or an acquisition in a U.S. business.
1: I suspect that what probably all transactions that involve foreign entities would be, or would fall under the purview of, of CFIUS, but is there more of a specific focus that the committee has?
0: In fact, there is, and not all it does jurisdiction, not, excuse me, not all transactions even fall within CFIUS jurisdiction. Okay. CFIUS has a couple of basic areas. One are what's called covered control transactions. That's where the foreign investment is of a sh- certain scale, and comes with certain control rights that let the foreign entity actually control the US business. And I should tell you that the the foreign stock ownership can be very low, can be 10%, but if it's combined with a board seat or something, it's considered to to grant CFIUS jurisdiction. But there are also covered investments, and you notice there's no word control there. Covered investments are where The foreign entity makes an investment into a U.S. business that, and I'll use the words from the statute, which I have up on the screen for those who are reading, which produces, designs, tests, manufactures, fabricates, or develops a critical technology, or which involves critical infrastructure or sensitive personal data.
1: Okay. Put it up on the slide now, but so what is critical technology and is that defined anywhere or is it understood?
0: It's a little of both, but it's, uh, <laughs> <laughs> it's basically defined as something which is controlled for defense purposes on the U.S. munitions list, certain nuclear facilities, equipment and material, certain uh, bioagents and toxins. But more broadly, it includes items which are subject to certain kinds of U.S. export controls. In other words, if you require an export license to ship technology or to share technology or to ship goods to the country of the investor, and it's a certain type of export control, then CFIUS has jurisdiction. And it also covers a wide range of emerging technologies in biotechnology, nanobiology, artificial intelligence, AI, logistics technology, wide range of areas are considered emerging technologies and CFIUS uh, can have jurisdiction over those technologies as well. In terms of critical infrastructure, it's large facilities, the, the incapacity or destruction of which would have a debilitating impact on, the US, on US national security. So you can talk about big pipelines, storage facilities for large quantities of petroleum, parts of the defense industrial base, chemical production, important transportation systems, ports. So critical infrastructure is also uh, something over which CFIUS has jurisdiction.
1: A lot of the things that are on the screen are sort of pretty net. I mean, one would expect that to be critical infrastructure. The last one on on the slide was water and wastewater treatment systems. Okay, I understand that water is important. Everyone needs to have access to water for basic human needs, but it's a little unusual to see it here, isn't it? Well, I suppose water uh, in many parts of the world, including particularly the Western United States,
0: is a very critical asset. And if a foreign entity were to have authority that would allow it to uh, divert, for example, water on which a downstream metropolis were reliant, uh, you could have a, a national security issue. So although you don't see many cases, we actually did uh, see a case a few years ago involving a European company that was buying a certain water management uh, systems that included the systems that operated for U.S. military bases. And that was something that right. could have potentially been subject to syphilis jurisdiction.
1: Maybe as an aside, the breadth of the potential transactions that can be reviewed by Cifius is fairly large. How many people work at Cifius, or does it even have a permanent staff? And do the people who work there have the technical or scientific expertise to be able to assess the kinds of technology that's under review? Well,
0: the people at Cifius itself may not have the technical expertise. But remember, there is a code lead energy on every case, or in most cases, I should say. So that if there is something that involves a complex energy technology, there would be people from the Department of Energy involved. Right. It involves a defense issue, the people from the from the Defense Department. CIFIA staff, not surprisingly, has been growing since FIRMA. And in fact, CIFIUS in the last few years, and we'll touch on this a little bit later, has added staff whose job is to read the trade press, read SEC filings. And look for non-notified transactions that might have an important national security implication. And then note and once Ciphius is aware of these things, it can then call on the uh the entities involved and ask them to file a notice or provide information.
1: Interesting. I this is all very, very interesting, most of which I had no clue about. So at least I'm learning things. I hope our people who are listening to us are as well. But I think it goes a little bit beyond that as well. I mean, we're talking about infrastructure, but there's non-tangible assets that also fall within the purview of CFIUS, right?
0: Sure. And that's why I'm mentioning sensitive personal data next. If a U.S. company has information in its records about government employees or large volumes of information about the financial circumstances of U.S. persons or about the mental health of U.S. persons, anything that could lead a foreign person to perhaps gain uh, some kind of leverage or even blackmail a U.S. person, it can fall within CFIUS jurisdiction. There was, for example, a transaction blocked a few years ago where a Chinese entity was looking at acquiring a website called Grindr or G-R-N-D-R or something like that, which was basically uh, a gay dating site. And there might have been people who are participating in that who weren't out yet and didn't want the information shared. And CFIUS actually saw to it that Grindr was not acquired by a foreign entity.
1: Interesting. I see here, these are US entities, right? So they would be the target of foreign investment. Mm -hmm. Maintains or collects data of more than 1 million individuals. I mean, that's probably like every social network website has at least 1 million individuals, users, right? And this is pretty broad.
0: Right. And that's why, for example, you're hearing a lot about TikTok in the news these days, because it's a social network that has information about millions and millions, I think over 100 million uh, Americans. Most of it is benign information, but perhaps not all of it. And the U.S. has been working with TikTok to try to find some way to allow that website to stay in operation in the United States, but do so in such a way that U.S. data can't leak to China, for example, this talk about having Oracle in Texas uh, keep all the computer uh, data and files for TikTok in the United States. So um, you're right that it's an important area. Another area where the million data point does not apply is genetic information. There's no you 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 can have specifically identifiable genetic information. In other words, not just just a wide test, but information that that allow the holder of the information to identify the U.S. person that perhaps has a genetic condition. You don't need a million uh, such files to qualify uh, for, okay. his, for his abuse jurisdiction.
1: I think you, you explained a few of the categories of the sensitive personal data. We have it on the screen now. So, you know, it's anything that, that consumer reports, insurance applications, financial data, health records, health issues. And then you've got these things like non-public electronic communication for like emails or texts or instant messages, and then ID cards, US official security clearance, all of these things. This is all really, it's all very, very broad. And so any company or any client that we deal with that has an interest in selling in the United States that contains this kind of information should probably be aware of of the existence of CFIUS and just say, ooh, hang on, we need to be careful here.
0: Indeed, uh, both in terms of the acquisition and also understanding that their ability to flip or to resell the U.S. asset might be somewhat limited in the future.
1: Right, because maybe it's not the initial transaction that's going to be a problematic, but it might be a subsequent transaction where you want to sell to another foreign agent, right? I exactly, agree. exactly. So we've talked about infrastructure and technology and data, but what other types of transactions might be looked at?
0: Well, I, I put up a slide that says real estate. There are very few f- such filings, but basically there are a hundred odd U.S. military bases that have a national security perimeter where the wrong party cannot buy land or acquire lease rights or certain rights to change or operate on real estate within a mile of the facility. And there are certain special facilities out west where there are wide open vistas for missile launching and so forth, where there are even hundred mile circles of, of CFIA's uh, jurisdiction. Of course, in urban areas, you have to have an exception to that. You can't have everybody buying a factory within a mile of the Boston Naval Yard, you know, being subject to CFIUS. But again, it comes up in, in unusual ways. For example, there was an attempt to buy the Waldorf, in fact, it succeeded eventually, to buy the Waldorf Astoria in New York City. But there was a US, US UN office was in the building. And the concern was if the particular foreign government uh, involved uh, above the uh, foreign buyer would have access perhaps to ways to eavesdrop on the U.S. office. So it was led to a complication in that transaction. Right. Obviously, if you're a foreign party and you want to just make a passive investment in the United States, earn money, you don't care about getting technical, hey, technology or information, there are ways to do it. And one of the most common ways is so-called investment fund exception, whereby a fund is set up with a U.S. general partner, okay and it's set up in the United States with a u.S general partner and the foreign partners uh, limited partners are not permitted to have any kind of control rights whatsoever they're totally passive there can't be foreign governments or certain limitations on who the LPS can be but generally if you want to be a an LP and you don't have access to the technology and you don't have control over the entity but you just want to go along for the financial ride there are ways to do that and there are uh, many funds that are set up with exactly this in mind.
1: Okay, so there are ways to sort of manage some of those requirements by mm-hmm. navigating through through the uh, the exceptions. Okay, that makes sense. Those are of course more sophisticated procedures, so you'd you'd need sophisticated clients to be able to do something like that. But still, it's a way out, assuming that a transaction does somehow fall within the review of of Cifius. What are the procedures? What's the timeline? What what are What's involved in trying to clear these hurdles?
0: Right. Well, first place is only a limited number of circumstances have mandated CFIUS filing. Filings are only mandated when there was a foreign government investor or there is an acquisition of a critical technology involved. Other than that, you get into voluntary proceedings and people have got to look at their proceeding and, and we'll come back and touch on this to see whether they think a filing is necessary. Cipius makes available two different forms of filing. One is called a declaration. Under a declaration, the, the foreign and the US parties jointly file a, online a form with Cipius. It's less complex than the long form notice. And the, under the Cipius rules, the agency is supposed to give you an all clear or tell you there's a problem within 30 days. Of course, it takes okay. a little while to put it together. It takes a while for them to say, okay, it's ready to go. Uh, you, you, you get an adequate application. So usually we tell people, you can think about six to eight weeks. However, what has happened more and more in recent years and the current statistics, which you'll see at the back end of this presentation show, is that increasingly Cepheus can't get it done within mm-hmm. the 30 days. Yeah. they will and they will come back to the parties and say, "Ah sorry, we really can't do this. You know, maybe a third, forty percent of the cases now. And so they say, go ahead and file a notice. And what has happened is you've wasted this time on the declaration and then you have to start with the notice again. and it ends up taking longer. So we've seen a tendency in recent years, and certainly it's true the advice we give our clients, Where where the situation is not really straightforward, clear cut, you know it's not going to be a problem, where we say to people, let's go ahead and file the longer form notice. In the notice situation, it takes, after you get it all together, and there's a lot of information, including personal information from the upstream owners of the companies, which many people do not like to provide. It's kept confidential, but they still have to provide it. So there's a very significant filing put together. And then CFIUS has a couple of weeks to tell you whether it's adequate. And then usually they find something that isn't adequate. And so it takes another week or so to fix it up. And then finally, the clock starts. And then they have 45 days, except when they, this is called the initial review. But when they can't complete it in 45 days, they ask they can get another 45 days which is called the investigation. And in a, again, an increasing percentage of cases these days, they go for both a review and an investigation, or at least some portion of the investigation. Uh, you know, We see cases where they ask for the second 45 days because they can't quite get everybody to sign off within the time limit, and it takes another week or two. But what this means is that for most CFIUS transactions, getting clearance is less a problem than just the time it takes, because you don't know quite how long it's going to take. And what you have to do basically is sign an agreement, because they have to see what the deal is before you can file. And then you file very shortly after the stock purchase agreement or the investment papers are filed. And then you make Ciphy's clearance a condition of closing. So if you want to close in three weeks, you know, you, you, can't, you can't do it. You got to do it with the risk of Cyfus coming back after closing, which they don't like to do. And telling you there's a problem. So it you know it 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 puts a degree of uncertainty, a degree of uh, a degree of complication on deals and of course that means added cost.
1: So you said something that was I thought was interesting. The deal needs to be signed before you can do your declaration. You wouldn't be able to approach Cifius and say, here's our proposed transaction, here's what it would look like. Can you clear it for us?
0: Well, you can, but what it would look like. They don't want to give declaratory Opinions. They're very busy. They really need to know what the deal is going to be. I mean, if you're really, if you have a very strong letter of intent and 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 structure of the deal, you can you can do so. But I say it's it's certainly preferred by Cepheus to have. A signed agreement with a contingent closing. I think that's what they're used to seeing.
1: Okay, so probably a good idea to have in your in your closing documents a condition that if the transaction is subject to CIFIUS, then it's going to close once you get the approval. That's correct. All right, but these filings are done online, right? Yes,
0: yes. There's okay. a there's an elaborate form online, and then once you file, CFPB then comes back to you online with what with question sets. And you have, for notice, only three business days to respond to each question set. And in a declaration context, only two business days. Parties have really got to be ready to jump.
1: So they can take their time, but you don't have any time as a, as a party to the transaction. You've, you've got to respect the deadlines.
0: That's correct. <laughs>
1: yeah. Works like that everywhere, I suppose. It seems to, yes. <laughs> All right. We see the jurisdiction. We see the kind of transactions that are subject to review. We have a little bit of an idea of the procedures and the timelines. What do IP practitioners or practitioners outside of the United States need to be aware of, even even inside the US, right? Because if you're representing a US company that's going to be bought by a foreigner, you need to be aware of these things. So what are the Absolutely. kinds of issues that we need to, to look at?
0: Sure. Well, the first one is pretty clear. Is the investor a foreign person? Is the US person buying a US company? Not a serious issue. The second issue is, does the US company have tr- critical technology? That's the most important one because that can trigger a mandatory CFIUS filing. Okay. Uh, or does it have critical infrastructure or collect or maintain the type of sensitive personal data we discussed? There may not be a mandatory filing there, but it's likely that you're going to want to choose to voluntarily come before CFIUS because they have jurisdiction over you if you have one of those uh, types of assets being transferred and you don't want them coming to you after closing and asking questions that could possibly lead to ex post facto conditions. Another question, of course, is Is there a foreign government interest in the acquirer that can lead to a mandatory filing and the issue we discussed about proximity to US uh, military bases. And then once you have jurisdiction, you have to say to yourself, okay, well, they have jurisdiction over this, but this is really, this is a vanilla transaction. Do we really have to go ahead and file a voluntary filing here? Is anyone really going to care? So you have to look and see what is a target business really involved in? Would it logically have a national security implication? Uh, for example, is it a sole supplier to the U.S. government of something for the defense base? That's important. Does it have an issue with uh, pre- prevention, nas- uh, sabotage, espionage, or tampering? The Biden administration came out with a uh, a list in September of 2022 about other issues that people should keep alert to. Facilius. Supply chain resilience, that was made clear during COVID that it's uh, a real issue. The impact on US technological leadership, what does that mean? You know, if, yeah. there are, if there are cumulative investments, none of which seems all that important on its face, but it looks like it's a pattern of trying to gain access to a particular area of technology or uh, maybe keep the United States from moving forward so quickly, that's an issue. Cyber security risks, data so that you know the the ra- there are a range of issues but really just a logical analysis of of the target company and whether its acquisition by a foreign buyer depending to some degree on 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 the the location of the foreign buyer whether that will have an impact on us national security and um CFIUS has for mandatory filings you know penalties if you don't file they can you know, charge you, uh, you know, hundreds of thousands of dollars. And they have published, again, in October 2022, a Federal Register notice with a lot of details about what their enforcement approach is going to be.
1: So prior to 2022, October 2022, the penalties for not complying were essentially monetary in nature? Would would have been able to block or undo a transaction that oh, had been absolutely. consummated? Yeah.
0: Yes. Going back to, to 1975, they could really block a transaction. But they also have minor additional monetary penalties, for example, for failing to uh to file. Uh, a mandatory
1: notice okay so now they've got a little bit more teeth into the process so they can they're they're really putting the squeeze on those transactions to make sure that they're being percolated up and they look at them before it's too late
0: right though they had I mean they had jurisdiction and could have applied penalties in the past the penalties have been going up and they have just been given guidelines to give a little bit more visibility to uh, to what they can can and, and have done.
1: If you've got a, a client coming in and talking to you about a potential investment, is it better to err on the side of caution and do a short-form filing or a notice, even though you think it might not be reviewable by CFIUS? Or do you not want to flood uh, the committee with all these um, declarations or notices and just focus on the ones that are important?
0: I would say generally the latter. It depends partly on, again, on, on the, the the nature of the transaction, the nature of the foreign buyer, and whether, for example, the foreign buyer has got a plan to continue to make investments in the United States. Maybe they want to be visible to CFIUS, get known, have them understand who they are, have a record, so that the next investment will go through a little bit more smoothly. So it okay. really depends on a whole range of... Uh, Circumstances. And again, first you have to ask is filing mandatory? Obviously, if it's mandatory, you have to do it. And then I've set forth here, uh, you know, in the slides, just a list of some of the issues you have to ask yourself and your client. How sensitive is the target's technology? Will the transaction actually result in foreign control of the US target? Is the target involved with the government as a supplier or a recipient of funds? How much money is involved? The bigger the deal, obviously, you know, the, the mm-hmm. more uh, likely it is to be of interest to CFIUS. Uh How much of the U.S. relevant national market is held by the target? What is the country of the investor? Has CIFIUS previously cleared the investor? Are filing fees an issue? Because for a notice, there are significant filing fees, whereas for diff- uh declaration, there aren't.
1: Here you say that uh, CFIUS rarely initiates a review su sponte. Is that because... They're limited in their resources, or they really insist on voluntary compliance with the rules by the parties involved in a transaction?
0: You know, I, I think I might take a little issue with the, the that they rarely do things sui They do come along and ask people... Uh, to file information. Some t- and, and we don't always know about that because if they come to a, a company and ask questions and the company answers the questions to their satisfaction, it may not even be included in the statistics for notices or declarations. Okay. Uh, so there is quite a bit, bit of off the record touching base. And even where there are filings, the identity of the parties in most cases is n- never known You see uh, 18 months or so after the close of a fiscal year, a report published that will tell you the aggregate numbers of the filings of notices and declarations, but it's really kept pretty confidential. So that said, there certainly is an emphasis on getting people to provide notice, but they don't want you to waste their time either. They're very busy. They'd like kind of a cooperative approach from the private sector.
1: We've talked about two different paths to getting the attention of CFIUS. One is a notice, the other one's a declaration. What's the difference between the two?
0: Well, as I said, the declaration is done much more quickly. The notice requires a lot of personal information from the individuals who own the, ups- the, the ultimate upstream company and owner, the time limit. But there's also the risk with the declaration, and there's no filing fee for a declaration, but there's also a risk with the declaration they're going to come back and ask for notice anyway. So, we only recommend declarations when it's, it strikes us is a pretty simple, clear-cut situation where the we think the agency can handle it in the thirty-day time period, or whether the the foreign acquirer has filed a full notice previously is known mm-hmm. to CFIUS and is making a subsequent acquisition in the same general area.
1: So the I, the before last bullet there is is interesting. So they might advise the parties that they it can't conclude. The action based on the declaration but they Mm -hmm. wouldn't require the filing of a voluntary notice so what happens then
0: (laughs) well it's not as a shrug Uh, and uh, (laughs) usually the parties take that as a sign that there's no real problem but the agency just didn't have the time or resources or wanted to provide a blank check Uh, but uh, every now and then if 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 the condition of closing is that they must have clearance and they have to go ahead and file a notice
1: right Okay, so maybe you need to ward your your condition carefully in some cases exactly. to, to exactly. not fall into a trap.
0: Exactly. Interesting. It does happen. And here is just uh, I'm I'm going to show now the the uh, the the filing fees for notices again for declarations you don't have any, but for notices you know up to 250 million dollars it's only $75,000 filing fee but over 750 million dollars it's a $300,000 filing fee so it goes pretty high pretty quickly the parties to a transaction usually split the fee that's usually unless there's an agreement to the contrary the the fee must be paid out of a US bank account where it can be wire transferred ACH there can only be one payment so if one of the, if the parties decided to split it one of them has got to be the the messenger, and the other one's got to receive and, and pay the money for the two of them. So it, it adds a little sort of little complication towards the uh, the end of the process.
1: So these are fees that are payable to the U.S. government. Are they mm-hmm. are those fees used to fund CFIUS's activities, or do they fall under the general receivables of the government, and they you know they get spent however Congress Congress allocates the funds?
0: I'm not sure, though. I would assume the latter. I just I really don't know for sure.
1: We have an issue sometimes in Canada about the fees that we pay to the Canadian Patent Office and where they end up. It's a little mm-hmm. bit different because it's a self-operating agency, but it raises questions every once in a while. Sure. So we know that you need to file something after the signing of the transaction, mm-hmm. but what happens between that and the closing? You know, you've given some ideas of the timelines, but what actually happens in that time?
0: The parties, if they haven't done so already, and usually they have, uh pull their filing together and get it submitted online and then Cifius starts coming back at them with questions and they start answering the questions and with uh and then it gets closer to the deadline and the parties start harassing Cifius about hurry up so <laughs> we want you to get done on time and they say we're doing our best or we can't get this particular uh, treasury department official to sign off uh, we're going to have to ask for an extension an investigation so it's, it's about what you would expect
1: now you say here that it can take anywhere from six weeks to five months. If we're closer to the six-week range, it's probably manageable by the parties. But if the debt, if the timing extends to five or you know maybe six months, that can be a real issue for transactions. How do the parties deal with that during that whole time? Are they because they, they're in kind of a limbo situation, right?
0: Well, usually when you're going to have Sifius take the first forty-five days and then the second forty-five days and ask for additional information and so forth, usually the parties know going in that they have a sensitive area and an important area, and they build the kind of time in between signing and closing. Sometimes they can just go ahead and close and take their chances with the subsequent CFIUS activity it it really it really just depends on the on the parties and their situation but it's all part of the the structuring of the cypus transaction in the overall transaction and it's the the timing issue again which is often the most troublesome to the parties
1: so proposed transaction file a notice or a declaration what are some of the mitigation measures or what are some of the things or conditions that can be included in the transaction to alleviate the risk of CFIUS outright refusing the transaction?
0: Sure. Well, CFIUS can come to the parties and ask for a national security agreement or a supply, secure supply agreement of some sort. But if the parties are well advised. They see this going in and they prepare it ahead of time to make sure that the, that the process will be smooth. If you have a target company, which is a supplier of something important to the US government, you want to have guarantees of supply to the U.S. government. If you have sensitive technology, you might want to have protections against export. You might even reorganize the companies to have a U.S. board and a U.S. company intermediate between the the, the target and the foreign owner, with strict controls on data not going upstream above the U.S. company. There, you know, all sorts of limits on integration with the foreign parent. Uh, limitations on reporting and consultation all this can be put into written agreement and it's got to be supplied along with sufficient audit procedures and guarantees of compliance to satisfy the government
1: now you you said something about the fact that parties are usually prepared for this i imagine that you want to be involved in those kinds of transactions way before the signature date so when would parties come in and speak to you and say we might have an issue here. We need we need some guidance. How, how soon in the process should they be ringing you up? Well,
0: should be ringing us up as soon as they know that there's going to be a foreign, foreign buyer. I should tell you there's a complication often for foreign buyers here because many companies are sold in a bid basis or there are several suitors. Hmm. And the foreign buyer doesn't want the fact that its transaction comes with a CFIUS string attached to make it less likely to be successful. So they may downplay or speak less openly about CFIUS until the transaction gets farther down and they're kind of entrenched as the buyer. Or some, you know, if it's not a mandatory filing, some may just choose never to raise it. The U.S. companies going to sell to them and then they take their chances after closing with dealing with any post-closing CFIUS concerns because they feel they can satisfy them if they arise.
1: But then again, you know, taking your chances is probably not the best strategy.
0: Generally not. But if it's the only thing you can do in order to you really want the business and you can and you're not going to get it, maybe it is the best strategy. It depends on the business context.
1: But slipping under the radar is not that easy. I mean, there's, as you said, there's a staff now that looks at lots of news websites and and things like that. And they get they get flags raised, right?
0: That's right. It it really is uh, difficult. So, um, if you have a transaction that involves uh, something you think is going to be of concern to Cipia, it's, it's much better to to raise it if you can upfront.
1: And we see on the screen some of the consequences of not of trying to to fall under the radar. Can you give us like a, a an idea of what are the un- outcomes of a of a ruling?
0: Sure. Well, the outcomes are you get clearance. It's called clearance under Section Seven Twenty One of the Defense Production Act. That's the official title of it. And that provides a safe harbor against subsequent government restrictions. Now, getting clearance may include a mitigation agreement of some sort uh, Mm -hmm. with some of the conditions we discussed above. Sometimes the government will say when you file, hmm, you really don't have all the information we need here. You need to withdraw and refile or your deal is structured in such a way that, you know, it's not going to look good for you. You may want to think harder about this. And so you may want to modify it, modify the deal and refile. Or CFIUS, even on the other end of it, could say, you know, this is going to go to the president for rejection. This isn't going to happen. <laughs> you know, think of, you know, spend your money elsewhere. Uh, so it uh, <laughs> caused the parties to withdraw. Uh, and as I said, there's also a possibility of a presentation to the president with a recommendation that the transaction be rejected. But usually the rejection happens through the friction that arises in the process earlier, rather than by uh, an outright formal presidential right. transaction rejection.
1: So hearing you and, and hearing your presentation, one would think that there are thousands, if not tens of thousands of transactions that are reviewed yearly by the committee. Can you give us a sense of what those numbers are like? Sure. This the numbers range to about four or five hundred a year. It's gone up a bit
0: in the last few years. In recent years, Chinese transactions have declined somewhat because the, the sense is that they won't be approved. But yet we encourage Chinese clients not to self-correct too quickly. Self-censure, exactly, too quickly because there are plenty of opportunities for Chinese investment. Uh if it doesn't involve a critical technology or access to sensitive data for example but rather it is a passive investment designed to earn money you know but there aren't as many as you think people don't file where there are where there's jurisdiction but really nothing strikes one as national security concern. i think that in the last reported year there may only have been six real estate you know transactions filed Okay or, very few in the real estate area, but you know the the number of you know number of notices and and declaration filings run 200 give or take you know 50 the last few years with declarations surprisingly declining and notices increasing because people have come to the same conclusions that we have the declarations often obvi- often don't get you the result and you have to go back anyway to square one so why not start at square one and not spend the extra 30 days or plus on the declaration
1: right so you would you would probably want to choose the declaration for what you consider to be a lower risk transaction anything that's a medium risk and above don't even bother go directly to the notice right
0: exactly exactly
1: so this is a very interesting chart i i I had a lot of questions about the notices and the countries from the notices so i think you pointed out china has been reducing the number of filings. But Singapore is in the lead now. Do we have an idea of the type of technology or the types of transactions that Singapore is, the Singaporean transactions are being reviewed or is it across the board?
0: You know, I really don't know because most of it is kept confidential. I don't know if it's in the semiconductor industry. I don't know if this is increased attraction to the United States because China is less attractive for Singapore investors. I don't know if, you know, there are other parties upstream of Singapore that uh, that haven't been identified. I just, I really, really don't know what, what's going on with Singapore.
1: But the, you see the numbers from Singapore and China, they're markedly higher than the UK or Canada and Japan. I mean, it, it's, sure. it's not an order of magnitude, but it's a significant difference. Mm-hmm. But for the declarations, Canada's first. Woo-hoo. So these would be low risk transactions. Right. And, you don't see probably- China on
0: the list of declarations as having a high number because Chinese... Investments aren't going to be cleared in the declaration format,
1: and presumably Canadian investors have already been cleared or pre-cleared by CFIUS. And you know we're nice and we're pleasant, and we're not going to steal technology from you.
0: Yeah, mostly that's true. Yes, Uh, uh, though I, you know, there there's anecdotal evidence discussion that countries with advanced surveillance or intelligence capacities even though their allies such as France and
1: Israel are looked at pretty carefully by Yes, yeah. We're running out of time unfortunately because this is such a supremely interesting conversation but you wanted to touch a little bit on the the recent trends particularly regarding China and it's it's not to not to put a, an unfair focus on on China and the Chinese but it's just a reality of the changing geopolitics, right?
0: Right. The the reality is that the Chinese investment in US high tech, especially in startups, was the primary motivation, I'd say, for FERBA. The United States has just been worried about Chinese money coming in quietly and getting a foothold in the areas which will be the growth for US technology in the future. So Chinese investments are looked at carefully. But again, that said, there are many Chinese investments that are cleared all the time, especially in uh, non-sensitive areas. So uh, we encourage Chinese investors not to self-censor, but to think about how they can invest in ways which will be win-win and not raise national security concerns.
1: And then, of course, you say that you know countries that have surveillance or intelligence capabilities um, receive heightened scrutiny. Seems normal or natural to me that that would be the case as well. And and I guess it, you know, it falls within a a certain logic of approaching this this new world older order that is developing uh Mm. as we as we speak right and this has been a fascinating conversation thank you very very much for your time and for accepting to uh, to present uh this morning the as we mentioned the podcast will be available on on streaming platforms For those of you who are interested in seeing the slides, they will be available on the FICB website. I want to thank everyone. A great day, a great end of week. And Ed, thank you again very much for your participation. This has been wonderful.
0: Thank you. I've enjoyed it. I look forward to speaking to you again soon. Thank you very much. Goodbye, everyone.
1: If you have any questions about the topics discussed in this podcast, you can sign up for free and message us, FICP.org. You can also find out more of what's to come on the FICP Focus 45 podcast series, either on the events page of our website, LinkedIn, or via our newsletter. See you next time.